So uh, a few years ago was um, the year kind of right after college. I finished up my freshman year at college. And um, my old youth leader, my young life leader as well, had invited a group of us to go on a sailing trip down in the Bahamas. We chartered a 60-foot catch. Uh, We got a captain uh, who I called a skipper earlier and was corrected. It is a captain. so if any sailing people out there, I know now. I know it's a captain. Um, but he, we, we got the captain, and he asked us what we wanted to do. And so we gave him some ideas. said, oh, we want to do some snorkeling. We want to do some diving, some fishing. Mostly we want to sort of be off the grid. We want to kind of find some remote places where nobody else is and just sort of enjoy the time. It was a smaller group. And the guy goes, great. I know exactly where to take you. We're like, that's awesome because we have no idea where to go. Um, he put together the menu, and we get on the boat. Now, this trip is kind of a miracle that ever happened because two years before this, uh, the same uh, Young Life Leader Youth Pastor had put together a trip with some of us, and maybe we were kind of a bit younger in our faith. We were A lot of us were new to Jesus, had not quite curbed our um, our normal behaviors just yet, and taking kids to like countries with less laws and not as much supervision as you need, not always a good idea. Um, but he did another trip and invited some of us that maybe had figured things out a little bit more. So this trip is kind of a miracle happened. So we get on the boat. Now, right before um, I had gotten to leave, I had gone in for like a regular physical. You know, you kind of go every year. At least I did. And then I took, you know, a decade off or whatever you do when you're 20. Um, so I go to the doctor and they go, you know, and they feel those places. You always wonder, like, why do they feel the same places? Some of you are doctors and know why. I'm not. Um But you always know if they linger for a long time on one place, that's like not a good sign. Um, And he did that. He's sort of feeling there on my throat. He's like, and he calls mom in. I'm like, well, this isn't good, right? You know, like when your mom gets called in, especially when you're sort of an adult. Um, Anyhow, so he feels there's a lump there. And so he's like, all right, well, what we need to do is we need to take a biopsy of this and see what it is and kind of go from here. So I'm 19. I'm invincible. I'm not thinking a whole lot about it. Although I am thinking about, oh, you're going to stick a large needle on my neck. That doesn't sound awesome. Um, It was not. Um, as many of you know. So they took it and, and they got the results back and it was either nothing, that would be great, right? Or it's the worst thing possible, not so great. Um, so I'm heading into this sailing trip with those kind of things happen. And basically they said, we've got to go in there. We've got to take out part of your thyroid so that we can actually see what this thing is because we can't tell without going in there. And so I am going to have some pretty major surgery, at least in my life. I'm not like a surgery person. Um, I don't spend a lot of time in hospitals except to visit people. Um, it was the first time I'd ever been cut open. And it seems pretty major when they're like going to cut your neck open and take things out, not put them back for some reason. Um, seems like I'd want all of the things that were in there. They're there for a reason. But um, so they're going to do this. So I'm leaving on this trip. Kind of that's in the back of my mind. And, you know, I don't think I'm thinking about it a whole lot, but as you know, a lot of those things kind of sit back there. So I'm going on this trip. One of the great things about it, uh, the person who's doing my, my surgery actually ended up on the boat with us. His wife was uh, one of my kind of mentors in high school. And so he went on the trip. He was really funny, which is only half of what you want in a surgeon. Like, that's okay, but you also want them to be a good surgeon. He was a good surgeon, okay? Um, but the funny part helped. He assuaged a lot of the fears going into it. We got a chance to spend time together. So we get um, three or four days in the trip. We'd been doing a lot of things. And um <laughs> And one of those nights, we were kind of anchored in a lagoon in the middle of nowhere, and it was one of those perfect nights. And I don't know if any of you have ever gotten far enough outside of Orlando to get to a place where there's no light pollution and where you can see horizon to horizon, and it's a perfect pitch black night, and the stars, and you can see, like, every star and everything that's going on. And I remember I was kind of up on the front of the boat, and uh, I was by myself. Everybody else was doing something else and laying there, and I saw the most amazing shooting star I've ever seen, the most amazing meteor. It was like horizon to horizon, like sparkles dripping off of it as it went by. It's like the NBA PSA thing with the star that goes up, you know. It's like you couldn't picture a more perfect scene. And I just sort of remember like being lost in it. 
just being in awe of how beautiful it was. I've looked for one like this ever since, even this week with the meteor shower that came through on Tuesday. Like, I keep thinking maybe someday I'll see something like this again. I, I don't expect that I ever will. And in that moment, um, I think um, I, I had this realization of where I, my place was, sort of in the universe. I felt the bigness of God, uh, my place. I don't think I realized how much I was carrying into the trip of the fear of what was going to happen, even in the surgery and anything else. And it was one of those moments that I needed where God showed up and spoke in a way that I needed to be reminded of exactly who I was and exactly who I, he was. It was an incredible moment. I still, I can, I can, if I close my eyes, I can see it because it was just one of those times and just be lost in awe and beauty and wonder. Now, in the same way, um, I could just sit there and be lost. And I find myself doing that. I find myself that connect through nature, sometimes through buildings. I'm being in really, really grand spaces. Um, I can be lost in those moments. But in the same way, I, I know what happened that night. I know that was not a shooting star. I know a star did not come and shoot into the ocean, as cool as that would be. Um, I'm pretty well aware that it was a space rock or a piece of a satellite that was hurtling through space. And because we have air up there and because there is friction, they hit, he's going fast, heat is produced. So I saw that. And then it landed unceremoniously, probably in the ocean and sank to the bottom, right? But I know the science behind that, but it is no less amazing to me. Because the science part of that still goes, I am still amazed that there are laws and constants in the universe that things can float through space and not like kill us all the time. Um, that there are things circling around us that help us to talk on phones. Like all of these things still draw me closer to God. Um, but I think we have these opportunities all the time uh, where we have these opportunities to be drawn closer to God uh, through the things we see. God knows how we're wired up. And, and throughout our everyday daily lives, there are opportunities we have to sit in wonder and awe or even to understand more fully how something works and be drawn closer to him. But I think one of the, the dangers, one of the risks that we face, maybe especially right now, um, because we have information so easily in our pocket, is that we can also just explain things away so easily. We can find out exactly how something works and just sort of put it in the back pocket and go like, well, that's good. I'm, I'm going to move on now. I find myself doing it all the time. And I was glad to hear after the first service and talking to some friends this week that it's a fairly common thing. Uh, you'll be driving along. You wonder how something works. Uh, you, of course, don't drive in Google because that would not be safe. Um, um, so you wait till you get to a very safe stopping point and Google whatever it is. But as soon as you find it out, I just sort of check it off put it in the back pocket. I'm like, now I know it. Maybe I'll use it at trivia night. It doesn't draw me closer or anything. It just sort of satisfies that urge that I have. And I think we do that oftentimes now. We have such easy access to things. And it's the same things could draw us closer to God, could make us more interested, but oftentimes just sort of scratch an itch that we have. Today, we're going to be talking about some people, these magi, these wise men that were in the East, these people that lived far away from the Christmas story who had the same opportunity. You see, they saw something incredible. And they could have ignored it. They could have explained it away. They could have just sat there with it and done nothing, but they didn't. They did something very different. And we're going to hear their story today. Today, we're going to be reading uh, from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I invite you to follow along. It's on your bulletin. It's also in your Bibles if you'd like to follow. And um, in this, in, the, in the, the book of Matthew, Matthew is capturing the stories. He has been an eyewitness. He's been part of the followers of Jesus. And he's writing down these stories so that we'd have them. And today, he's telling us uh, about this time when Jesus was born. And so here we find uh, these people called the Magi, and we're going to pick up again in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. 
When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Through this series, we've been trying to take a look at this birth story, this in breaking of God into the world, this baby Jesus coming in through different eyes. You see, uh, this is a birth that happened in a real place, in a real city, in a real manger, in a real country, in a real period of time. And these magi are no different. Sometimes uh, these can seem like fantastical people, like maybe they just exist as little fig- wooden figurines that we put in our nativity scenes. Every Christmas, they are so far outside of the story and it's so unusual. But these magi, these wise men, were an actual real people that came and visited during this time. Um, magi, the, where we get this word in the Greek is magos. And, and that is the same word where we kind of get this root word for magician. Um, it was said that... Uh, these folks uh, were someone who is wise in interpreting the stars or dreams, hence wise men, where that kind of connotation comes from. Probably the closest thing that we would have to call that now would be astrologers, people that study the skies to look for signs, to try to draw meaning and inference from things happening in the natural world. Um, we know that astrology around this time was considered a field of science in the time of Jesus, and, and business was booming, at least uh, very near to him, uh, in part because in 44 BC, which would have been just a short time before Jesus was born, uh, when Julius Caesar is buried, there's a supernova is visible in the sky. So there's well-documented intense interest by ancient astrologers into the connection between events in the sky and political events. I mean, it was actually believed that the stars announced the significant events, the birth or the death or victories of humans destined for greatness. So there was a business behind this. There were people that were doing this night after night, looking into the skies, looking for signs to be able to figure out some things that were happening in the world. The first thing that is so amazing about this story uh, is that God meets these wise men, these astrologers where they are. You see, these magi are so far outside of the Christmas story, it's hard to believe. The rest um, of the stories we tell, Simeon and Anna, Joseph, Mary, as we look at the shepherds, at least proximity, they were close. They were within the same region at the very least. Uh, They were somewhat closer because they knew the stories. They knew some of the prophecies of what they were looking for. They were looking for a king to be born, to come rescue the country, to to lift their people up, to take them out of... uh, slavery and oppression by the Roman government. They were looking for something, but the Magi, these wise men, these astrologers lived in the Far East. They were placed in a specific location far away from the story. So first off, geographically, they're far away. Next, they're far away. They haven't grown up with these stories. They're not necessarily looking for the same king to come in. They're far away from this first chosen group that God has pulled together and said, keep looking for me. They're far away from that. We also know that they are not necessarily respected by the religious leaders of the time, those who would have been considered close to God. In Isaiah chapter 47, 
Um, he has written before this, he says, let your astrologers come forward. Those stargazers who make predictions month by month, let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves. Astrologers were not necessarily highly regarded by the people who would have been surrounding this birth, the people that were looking for him. So the, these astrologers, these magi are far outside in so many different ways. But what's incredible is that God speaks to them in a way that they can understand. Before they have done anything, before they are deemed worthy, before they have fixed anything, before they know what they're even doing, a sign appears in the sky and they see it and God speaks to them in a way that only they would be able to understand. They probably didn't have the benefits of knowing what all of it meant, but they knew something happened and they saw it. Um, one of the things that has struck me as I've read through these stories is we've had a chance to look at all of these different th stories and kind of get through the different eyes. It's been really fun. I read again this week all the different birth accounts of Jesus and to try to read it as the people sitting in the story, it's really interesting because I think all of them felt like outsiders. Um, you have Mary, who is a teenage girl, who is just sitting there and all of a sudden is pregnant and is outside of her own community because of the stigma that she carries. You have Joseph, this young man who's pledged to be married to her, and all of a sudden the woman he's uh, is about to marry is pregnant and the shame that's going and the decisions he has to make in the middle of that. Simeon and Anna show up day after day just waiting. They're, they're just looking for something. They know something's supposed to happen, but they were outside. They were even considered maybe even a little weird in the ways they acted in the temple. The shepherds that we'll talk about next week lived outside of the town. And here we have these outsiders, these, these magi who live far outside of the story. If you're here today, if you have come into the room and you feel like an outsider to this story, Maybe just because it seems too fantastical to be true. Maybe because it's new to you. Maybe because this year it's just hard to get into it. Maybe it's life is so busy or it's been so difficult. If you feel outside of the story, I want to tell you, uh, you're welcome. You are in a room of former outsiders. You see, God only comes to outsiders. The story of God breaking into the world is a story of God traveling a great distance to come after people he loves very much and inviting them in. This isn't an exclusive thing. This isn't an invitational thing. God always comes to outsiders and only comes to outsiders. And the people you're sitting next to were at once outsiders or still are. So you're in good company. God rescues outsiders and comes to them. And God goes and went to great lengths to speak to these magi in a way they'd understand and give them a chance to respond. And I really believe that he'll do the same for you. I don't think that God stopped communicating with people when he went and gave a start to the Magi. I really believe that he has wired up every single one of us in unique ways to see him. For some of you, you may be like me, you're wired up to sense something bigger in nature. Maybe it's seeing a mountain peak or the ocean waves. Maybe it's in the power of a hurricane. Maybe it's in a sunset or a sunrise. Maybe it's somewhere in the created order of things. You sense that there's something bigger than you going on and, and something stirs deep within you and you know there's something else there and it draws you into him. For some of you, it may be in the face of a baby, whether you're grandparents or parents or you just love kids and there's something you see in a baby and a young child as they grow up and it just draws you in closer and you know that something's bigger is going on. For some of you, it's music. Maybe even the reason you walked in here today, you know when you hear a good melody or when you're in your car and you're blasting your favorite tune and something stirs deep inside you, you're wired up for music and there's something that's surging you and you know there's a connection to something bigger that's happening. 
for some of you, it's science and understanding how all these things works actually doesn't make you back pocketed. It draws you in. Knowing more about how all of these things work together draws you closer to God. I don't know what it is for you, but I believe that God has wired you up in such a way that and, and will meet you in those places and give you opportunities to see him at work. But then once the Magi had seen the star, they had a decision to make. Um, you see, they could have done nothing. They could have seen this incredible thing and, and just sat there and went, and went, ooh. And that's the end of their story. We don't hear about them, right? They just kind of disappear from it, and that's it. They could have seen it and said, this is really important. I'm going to write it down in a book, and if it comes true, I'm going to publish that bad boy and make some money. Like, look, we're fortune tellers, right? They could have, and then if it doesn't come true, they can just kind of burn the paper and like, we never saw that. Um, they could have explained it all away. These are smart people. You know, they studied the skies. They could have said, well, this is unusual, but this maybe happens every couple of million years. They could have explained it all away and done nothing with it. But the Magi saw something, and then they did something very different because they went. They went. Um, and they went at great cost. You see, again, they're far away. Geographically, they're living in a faraway land. And if you've ever looked at the map, um, anything east of where Jesus is, it's not easy terrain to get across. Uh, there's mountains and there's deserts and there's water. Uh, there's peril along the way. It's not an easy time to travel. Um, it takes a long time to get there. Some of the accounts I've read said this may have taken up to two years to travel there and back. Um, they went at great cost. They left behind their livelihoods, uh, maybe their families, the things that they had to leave behind. They had to move towards something unknown. Uh, they weren't part of this uh, story. They may not have known all of it. They, they weren't necessarily looking for the king who was going to bring up Israel, they were looking for something. They knew something was going on. Um, it says they brought treasures with them um, and that they presented them. So they're traveling uh, with uh, things that are of great worth. They had to give of their finances. Um, they also um, had to travel with that. There was probably some risk that they took even in that. We hear the parable of the Good Samaritan. It doesn't seem uncommon that people were robbed in wild places. And so here they are traveling with gold and frankincense and myrrh and other valuables. And so at any time that could have been taken, they put themselves at great risk. And where they end up, they go tell a king that another king is coming. Now, I don't know if you've read much about kings or watched Game of Thrones or anything around these things. Kings don't necessarily like to find out that someone is going to usurp them. Um, it doesn't seem to go well for the messengers oftentimes from what I can tell. Um, and Herod is no different. Uh, not long after this, we hear that Herod kills all the firstborn in the land. He is known as someone who's had power and exercises that power ruthlessly, as most kings do who have great power. So these magi even put their, their own physical bodies at risk by telling him, hey, I heard another king's coming. They got out, but there was a risk of them not being able to do that. And then the thing um, that has really hit me sideways, so they go and they tell Herod and they go to find uh, Jesus as he sends them off. And I don't know why this is, hasn't hit me in the same way. One of the beautiful things about getting to spend extra time preparing for this or having extra time in the season to look at it is certain things will come out to you. I know year after year, different pieces of the story hit me in different ways. But this one has really hit me sideways this year. You see, in verse 10, it says, the Magi, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. These people that were far away, who knew what a king was, they had just been with Herod, who had great wealth, who had great power, who had all the trappings of a king. 
these magi, these astrologers uh, were advisors to kings. They knew what a king looked like. They knew exactly what a king looked like and how it looked. And they came to Magi, or to Herod. It doesn't say they stopped and worshiped him. They were still looking for a king. But it says when they came to a poor mom, a poor teenage mom and a little kid, they stopped and they worshiped him. They bowed down. I mean, it goes so far to say they bowed down. I picture this. They had to give everything of themselves. I mean, they physically lowered themselves to a child. They recognized a king, and not just a king, but the king. When they were looking, something about that child, they knew. And they knew enough to get down on their knee and worship him. And I think here we talk about worship. I I think we try to put it in the best possible context we can, that worship is giving everything of ourselves, all the parts of our lives towards God. And we see this happen so clearly. They give of themselves physically, of lowering themselves to a child. They give of their time. They give of their safety. They give of their treasure. It says they present him with gifts. They saw a king that day and they recognized him and they worshiped him. And that is just, I'm glad I'm actually able to talk about it without like crying a little bit because the first few times going through this, it has been been so overwhelming to think of that scene, to think of these strangers, to think of these outsiders being drawn so close to God himself and being included in the story and the ways they responded. Um, It's also really interesting uh, of what they bring to this king. You see, God's doing some work in them. He had been doing work in them well before they had their stuff together. As they were looking at the stars, he spoke to them. He gave them a chance to respond, and they came, and they brought gifts. And in the first gift they bring of gold is a very common gift for kings. It's the medal of kings. Gold would be a very welcome gift. Um, I would appreciate some, or Bitcoin, whatever you have. Um, but gold would have been a very normal thing to give to a king, right? But then the second one becomes a little bit more interesting, this frankincense, this incense. This is used in temple worship. They would mix this with oil and and anoint priests with that. So this would have been a little bit farther outside of their realm. Why would they would bring this? There seems to be a sense uh, through history that uh, they knew that that Jesus would be the great high priest, that eventually he would be anointed with that oil for us. But the last gift that they bring at the least would be considered very odd and at at the most would have been deeply disturbing and and actually very um, offensive. Um, It's probably not often that you show up at the hospital when your friend's baby is born and bring embalming fluid for them. Um, That's basically what they've done. Myrrh was used in the embalming of bodies and we can't find a lot of evidence for anything else that it's used for. Later on in the book of John, when they take Jesus' body to prepare him for burial, it says they brought 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh there seems to be this sense that God was working in these magi early on as they brought these gifts, this gift of death. They kind of knew where Jesus was heading, these different facets of his life. God was at work in them throughout this whole journey. And then not only did God meet them where they were in the midst of their lives, not only did he invite them to respond, but then their lives are changed. And that's been one of the incredible things as you read these stories of people that came in contact with Jesus their lives are changed. Not one of them had the same life after coming in contact. Mary's life, radically different. She sees her son on a cross later in life. She sees all of it. Joseph goes on to become father of Jesus and walks with him and his family through all this. Simeon and Anna, as they go and they see and hold Jesus for the first time, 
these dreams are fulfilled. And these magi are no different. They come and encounter Jesus and their life is changed. It says at the end that they were supposed to go back to Herod and tell him where uh, the baby was so that he could worship them. But in verse 12, it says, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. See, not only was their life changed uh, metaphysically in all these different ways. It was changed quite physically in the way they had to go back. They weren't able to go even in the same direction they had planned to return. They had to go home by a different route to be able to be safe, to be able to protect this new king. Their lives were changed. One of the things I am so excited about in this next year um, is we're going to be spending an entire year looking at Jesus. And I think the promise, I don't even think, I know this promise is true, that when we come in contact with Jesus, when we come in contact with Jesus himself, God in the flesh, our lives are changed and they're changed radically. And we're gonna be doing that week after week next year, going back to the good story, hearing about Jesus, God in the flesh coming to earth and seeing exactly what he's like. And the hope of that is that we will be changed individually together. My life has been radically different after coming in contact with Jesus. There's just no way it isn't. And we see that again in these stories of the Magi. So my question for you, in the midst of this season, we've got a week left. How is God trying to get your attention? What are the lengths, what are the places he's speaking to you in your life? How is he trying to get your attention? Are your eyes open to it? Are you willing to see it? How is he trying to get your attention? And when he does, are you willing to go and follow? Are you willing to show up? Because if so, if you go and encounter Jesus, your life will be changed. Um, after I finished college, um, the University of Florida go Gators. That's my contractually obligated Gator statement once a year. Um, I left and I went to work at Southwind, which is this incredible camp where we do family camp, where we take our middle schoolers. We're just there this past weekend. It's a place that's really special to me. It's where I encountered Jesus for the first time. Um, and so I went to work there and it was like the dream job. It's everything I thought it was supposed to be. And a few months into it, I realized this isn't where I'm supposed to be anymore. I missed working with kids. I missed having the chance to go to the high school and tell uh, high schoolers about Jesus. And so the process at the time uh, with Young Life is to sort of let them know um, I'm feeling led towards this. There's an interview, there's some prayer, there's some time of the sermon. And basically they would then say, uh, yes, you're approved and called to go in the field and work with kids or no, maybe take some more time. So go through that process. Uh, they give the thumbs up. They say, yeah, that makes sense. You're, you're called to go out. Um, at the same time, I'd been talking to my friend, Bill Loy. Bill has been a mentor to me throughout a good chunk of my life. In fact, I got to see him this week, which was really cool. Um, and it was great. He lived in Fort Myers, which is close to my family. I'd grown up on the West Coast there, Florida. Um, and it's just, everything seemed to make sense. You're going to go work with someone you really respect and love and enjoy working with to a place that is kind of near home. Everything seemed to be working out. So I remember going through and we're, I mean, this just seems like it's all heading in the right direction. I'm moving to Fort Myers. And so after they say, hey, you're approved, they basically, the, the, the group said, okay, before you do anything else though, um, we need you to go consider Orlando. And I remember laughing out loud. Not because Orlando, because I love Orlando now, but because I didn't think anybody lived in Orlando. You see, um, my senior year in high school, my friend Dave Wilford and I were staying with my parents and uh, we'd gone to Disney and I borrowed my mom's swagger wagon to drive around. And we decided we were gonna drive around. This is before GPS, um, that dates it a little bit. Um, we decided we were gonna drive around and try to find where someone lived. And we drove for well over an hour and could not find a single apartment or house. And except for Xanadu, unless if you consider that a place where people lived, I don't think anybody lived there. The home of the future, anybody go there? Great, um, moving on. But um, so when they said, go check out Orlando, I would just laugh because I'm going, there's nobody in Orlando. Why would you possibly need me to go there? Everybody just lives at Disney, I guess. Um, 
So I came down. I said, okay, I'll go. So I came to Seminole County, met up with this guy, Leo. We drove by Lake Marion High School, prayed for it. That was where the opportunity was. Uh, we had um, a barbecue buffet meal that is no longer open due to health food concerns, though it was delicious. Um, and by the end of it, um, they basically said, hey, we'd love for you to come. You need to go back and pray about this, consider it, and let us know. So I go back, start talking to friends, make the pros and cons list, you know, going through the whole thing. A couple nights into it, um, I still remember, I am not one for visions. I live in a pretty rational world. I like to understand how things work. I don't tend to live in the mystical very often. I, I tend to kind of like things to line up very logically and for it to make sense. That's how I've lived most of my life. A couple nights into the process, though, I, I go to sleep and I have a dream, and it is the closest thing to a vision I could have ever had. Um, there in the midst of sleep, in the midst of this time, I remember um, in this dream being on a hill with Jesus, which must have been Claremont because I don't think there's any other ones here. Um, <laughs> and we we're looking out over the city of Orlando and he said, these are my people, go tell them about me. And I remember waking up and just having peace about this decision. Now, um, there's a lot of things that could have happened after that. I could have just blindly gone and said, well, I've had a dream, it's time to go, which would have still worked out. I'd still be here. I could have written that off and said, well, I had chicken wings kind of late that night and well, indigestion, you know, you have weird dreams. Um, I could have written off because I know like that's how the subconscious works. Like when you're thinking about something all the time, that tends to be what you think about in your dreams. But I really believe that God spoke to me in a way uh, that I needed to see him because I can rationalize things away all day long. I can make my list. I can talk to my friends. I can do that. And that's how I tend to discern things. But I think in that place, in the place where I had no control, you don't have control of your dreams. I don't know if you know that. Um, but uh, in this place where I needed some confirmation, he met me there. And then I had the opportunity. I still had a choice to make, even in the midst of all of those things that added up to come here, whether to stay or go. And I decided to go. And I will tell you that life has never been the same. Life is radically different than where it was before that season. And it's not always been up and to the right. Some of my hardest days have been here. Some of my saddest days, some of the most difficult times I've ever walked through have been here, as well as some of the greatest, the most triumphant, the most beautiful times. My family has been formed here, this church, uh, the people I've had a chance to share this good news with. Life is radically different. Here's my encouragement to you this week. It's not over yet. You haven't missed Christmas. We still have a week left. This week, pay attention. God is willing to go to great lengths to speak to you. He is. He's willing to go to the places you're wired up. Pay attention. Keep your eyes open. Um, one of the things I keep coming back to is not only does he love us, but he actually likes you, and he actually wants good things for you. Pay attention. And when you see him, and when he shows up, go to him. Go to the manger. Worship him. Give him all you got. Because if you do, your life won't be the same. It won't, I promise. That's what we celebrate every week here as a church. We're a group of people proclaiming that life is different because God came near. Because we responded and he's changed us. Don't miss it. Let's pray.